We're going to read the first 16 verses of this chapter. This morning, Lord willing, we're only going to be covering the first two as we look at this, but the first 16 verses are a unit. And in this unit, He's going to instruct us as a church on the things that we should be absolutely in oneness with each other. And that would be verses 1 through 6. Then you'll notice in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are to be one. We're to be in unity as a congregation. But there will be differences among us. Differences that have been given by God. Differences that involve our giftedness. And those differences in giftedness are for a purpose. That purpose is for the building up of one another in this congregation, in the things of Christ. And that will carry us all the way down through verse 16. This really comprises the walk and the aim of a New Testament congregation. So let's read these first 16 verses. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We have learned through the past several weeks that God has an eternal purpose. That eternal purpose is seen in chapter 3 and verse 11 when he says this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That eternal purpose is God's revealed mystery. That is the fullness of Christ filling all in all. That all things, whether they be in heaven or on earth, whether they be visible or invisible, will be summed up in Him, in Christ. And that summing up and that eternal purpose is to be seen in the radiant In the radiance in the church is to be seen here in this local congregation, in other local New Testament congregations. This radiant outflowing of the working of this mystery, of this eternal purpose, is to be seen in this congregation among other New Testament church congregations. And so Paul prays for the church to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And that was the first three chapters of this book. That this mystery would be enlightened to the saints, that is to us, and then having that growing understanding of the length and depth and height and width of this mystery we are to be strengthened in our inner man with power by the Holy Spirit so that this place would be filled with all the fullness of God. Can you imagine that? There's a lot of work ahead for us. For that fullness to be seen, for someone to walk into this place and basically look at this congregation and see Christ in this congregation. Not to see a social group, not to just see a group having fun with one another, not just a place full of programs and activities, but to see the risen Christ in this place. What a glorious privilege this is for the people of God. And we saw that this filling with all the fullness of God is the same as Christ filling all things, which is the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same fullness, whether it's God the Father, God the Son, God the the Holy Spirit. This is His fullness to be seen. What a privilege, what a responsibility, what an obligation that we have. Can you think of any higher thing or any higher calling than to be called to walk in this manner? And yet how fallen men and women undervalue this. And folks, this revealed mystery and its outworking in a local New Testament assembly 
is really more abundantly beyond all that we could even ask or think of. Mankind never requested this gift from God. <clears throat> Mankind never had this eternal purpose enter into his thoughts and mind. Mankind never saw or heard about this eternal purpose in any, <coughs> excuse me, in any fashion or form. Man never had this eternal will or purpose even begin to enter into his heart. And yet God himself from eternity past, this is his eternal purpose and always has been for that which he has created. And folks, God has the powerful ability to do this. We don't. His power and ability and capacity to bring this to pass occurred when Christ died on that cross. He was buried and He was raised again on that third day. At that moment, the gospel moment, we were created in Him. That's power. That's amazing. And that same power that brought this to pass in the gospel or in the person of Jesus Christ is the same power that, hear this, is now working in His churches. It's not just accessible. It's not just out there. We just turn the right switch or put in the right keypad. Then we have it. It is now working in every New Testament assembly. And the church says amen to this. A New Testament congregation says, so be it, Lord. There is a resonation in our hearts to want to see this to happen. We affirm it, we concur with it, with that eternal purpose and its accomplishment in the risen Son of God and that eternal purpose being brought to pass here in this place and in our lives. That is it. That is the purpose for which you were created in Christ Jesus. To have this operation of His power working in you to bring you into maturity, the maturity which is the fullness of Christ in this congregation. That is amazing. And folks, what I have just expressed to you, <clears throat> that eternal purpose, is very little known in the American church today. In the American church today, we hardly even know what the gospel is anymore let alone what occurred in the gospel. Let alone understanding how that eternal purpose is worked out in a local New Testament assembly. Let alone the importance of a New Testament church in the lives of saints. We have a lot of sub-purposes, but that ultimate eternal purpose is silently quiet in the church today. May it not be so here. May you grab hold of that purpose in your heart and may it never ever leave you.
Now folks, that eternal purpose, as we have seen in Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 7. God in the ages to come might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship. Created where? In Christ Jesus for good works. Good works that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. These first three chapters in Ephesians are laying down that foundation of doctrine and understanding that is to be the motivation of every single person here in this room to walk in a manner worthy of Him. And folks, the gravity of this and the seriousness of this is seen in verse 1 of chapter 4. Note how Paul words it. Therefore, based on what has been proceeding, based on his prayers for that congregation, therefore I, the prisoner of who? of the Lord implore you. Everybody see that? Folks, could he have written it this way? Could he have said, therefore I, Paul, implore you to walk? Could he have worded it that way? He could have worded it that way, but he adds this description to show the gravity and the seriousness of what he is about to say. I mean, folks, Paul is in prison when he writes this. Why is he in prison? He's in prison for the gospel, isn't he? He's in prison for the revealing of this mystery. He's in prison on behalf of proclaiming this mystery, which includes all that God is doing in Christ, and all, we'll see this later, all that God is doing in the church. He is in prison for this. And folks, what we learn here is that Paul is going to give to us a strong exhortation that is so urgent that in the mind of Paul it's worth being imprisoned for. Right? This exhortation is worth being imprisoned for. This exhortation is worth our whole life. It's worth our comforts is worth our bank account, is worth our homes, our families. This eternal purpose is worth everything, and Paul is the living example of this, isn't he? I mean, folks, if Paul was concerned about his comforts, then he wouldn't be going around proclaiming this mystery. Being stoned with stones is not comfortable, would you agree? Losing one's health is uncomfortable, would you agree? Going without food and water is uncomfortable, would you agree about that? Not being adequately clothed, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? 
Paul says this mystery and the knowledge of this mystery and the proclaiming of this mystery and the working out of this mystery in local New Testament assemblies is worth it all. It was worth the life of Jesus Christ. And it's worth our lives. So folks, in light of his imprisonment, He implores you, look at verse 1, He implores you, that's plural, He's imploring the whole church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now brethren, when the Bible says that there is a walk that is worthy of the calling, we can deduct that there is also a walk that is unworthy of the calling. Right? There's a worthy walk and there's an unworthy walk. And the Bible talks about this walk. It talks about this walk in this book in a negative fashion. We've already seen it in chapter 2 and verse 2. We formerly walked according to the course of this world. That's how we used to walk. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too all formerly lived. We walked. We behaved according to the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That's an unworthy walk. And then there is a worthy walk. And this is what Paul is exhorting us to do. And folks, let me just give you some broad categories here in this book in which Paul is going to address what a God-glorifying walk, a walk worthy of the manner of which we have been called looks like. A God-glorifying walk involves your aim and purpose of life. If your aim and your purpose of life doesn't line up with what Paul is going to describe here, you're walking in an unworthy fashion and bringing reproach on the name of Christ. There is a God-glorifying walk with your attitude. Boy, can Christians have bad attitudes. And we can justify it under a lot of stuff, but it's still an unworthy walk. It's unworthy behavior. There is a God-glorifying walk that involves our doctrine. It's amazing in the American church today how quickly we want to mold and remold biblical doctrine so that we can be satisfying to the world. That is an unworthy walk. There is a God-glorifying walk that involves our giftedness and how we use it. There is a God-glorifying walk in the area of love, which is to be sacrificial, not self-serving. There's a God-glorifying walk when it comes to our mind and how we think. How are you thinking this morning? Is it giving God glory? Is your mind and your thoughts 
being filled with the radiant outshining of the thoughts of Christ? Surely you want the Word of God to dwell richly in you. There's a God-glorifying walk that involves proper music. Boy, is that a debate today. And folks, if there's a God-glorifying walk in the area of music, then there's a walk that is unworthy music. There's a God-glorifying walk that involves how you talk, your speech to one another. And folks, there's a God-glorifying walk in how careful we are to outwork all these things. That this is not to be casual. This is not to be flippant. This is not, oh, when I'm with the church, then I'll act this way. But when I'm outside the church, then I'll be less strict with myself. No, there is a carefulness about this. And whether it be our aim or our attitude or our doctrine or our giftedness or our sacrificial love or how we think or our music or our speech or how careful we are, it all exudes in our relationships one with another. Whether it be in our family, whether it be in the church, whether it be with one another, there's a proper way that we are to be walking that gives God glory. And folks... In the American church today, we talk a lot about glorifying God, but we don't know how to do it. (laughs) Everybody has their own idea what it means to glorify God. But Paul's going to tell us how to do that. And folks, these things that I just spelled out to you in broad categories are not exhaustive. This isn't the complete list. We could sum it this way, that in every area of our lives, we should be holding to this eternal purpose. No area exempt. Whether it be internal, external. No area exempt in this eternal purpose. And as I've considered these things, and I've looked at it in a broad fashion, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, folks, if, if Paul begins it this way, you would think that the New Testament church would get the most excited when they see these things in our lives. Right? If this is our aim and purpose, and we begin to see this in our lives and with one another, that ought to really make, I'm going to use use an illustration, it really ought to make the dog's tail wag. Right? It ought to make us happy. But I found it doesn't make New Testament churches happy. Because they're looking for something else to make them happy. Surrendering to ministry, that is exciting. But if the qualities of which we are going to begin looking at are lacking, then we are erring in our estimation of what gives God glory. 
Because whether you are gifted as pastor teacher, or whether you are gifted as missionary, or whether you are gifted in other ways, every person is to be walking in these attributes. Every one of us. In fact, if I'm not walking in these attributes, it disqualifies me from exercising my gift as a pastor teacher. So folks, doesn't it make sense that we ought to measure on these attributes and then let whatever happens out of that happen? Because this is the most important thing for us. And chapters 4 through 6 of this book are going to comprise some of those good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. So are you ready to look at them? Are you ready to get thrilled about this? Because this is God's eternal purpose for Faith Memorial Baptist Church. And it begins with the prepared works, verse 2, of humility and gentleness. Isn't it interesting that Paul begins with heart attitude? I heard a preacher say one time that if a church is in disunity or has any problems at all, that the solution to those problems is to go soul winning. That's not what Paul says here. Should the church be echoing the Scripture? Amen. But that's not the solution for a New Testament church. It begins with humility and gentleness. And folks, if it begins with humility and gentleness, then it ought to really shock you how rarely you hear preaching on this. I'm pausing to let you think about that statement. Yet... Every relationship in our life is to flow out of these two heart attitudes. Everything. So where does it begin? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. Folks, we have gone over this before, but I want to re-emphasize it. God is opposed to the proud. He stands in opposition to the proud. He's not for the proud. He doesn't massage the proud. He doesn't welcome the proud. He stands in opposition to it but He gives grace to the... Do you hear that? And folks, the thing about it is, and I've come to see in my own life, that pride permeates just about 
every aspect of my being. There are ways that you are proud that you don't think it's pride. But it is pride. Isaiah writes that God is going to destroy the wisdom of this world. He's going to destroy the proud things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. You are to take those thoughts that exalt itself against the knowledge of God, pride thoughts, and you are to lasso them and capture them and plow them out and replace them with the Word of God. Do we hear that? When we talk about walking in humility, there are various ways that we can define the term. But to walk in humility means that we walk in a way, we behave in such a way that we do not live our lives insistent on my rights. Now in America today, our young people are being told, you have a right to this. You have a right to that. You have a right to this. We have no rights. But your flesh will tell you you have a right. Show me an opinionated person and I will show you a person who thinks they have a right to voice every thought they think. That's pride. For a person to say in their hearts, why have a right to be heard? It's pride. To say I have a right to be first in line. They were first in line last week. My right to be first in line this week's pride. I have a right to voice my opinion, or I have a right to be right. I'm right, you're you're wrong. I have a right not to clean up after you. You made the spill. You clean it. Why should I have to clean up? What you messed up, that's pride. Does it really matter who cleans it up as long as it's cleaned up? Or, if I was going to put it in words of Southern culture, I have a right to tell it like it is. Put it in American terms, I have a right to be the best me I can be. It's pride. Whether we say I have a right to be successful or I have a right to a good home or I have a right to be at ease or I have a right to have vacation or I have a right to be healthy, all of that is flowing out of pride. Because, folks, a mature believer knows they have no rights. Everything you and I have is by gift. Did you hear me? 
You have no right to it at all. Including salvation. By grace you have been And folks, you can multiply these examples over and over and over and over. You can keep adding ad nifinum all the way, all the ways that we express self. You show me a person who holds bitterness in their life, I will show you a prideful person. How can I say that? Because, folks, bitterness begins when you're all concerned about how it affects you. There you go. And you feel like something didn't get done right. A person who is humble is more concerned about edifying others than demanding their way. Are we hearing this? Would you not think that when we see such expressions of humility, that that would make us excited because that is the exact opposite of the way the world is walking? A humble person does not push itself forward. It doesn't say, well, you didn't mention my name from the pulpit. You didn't recognize my efforts and my activities within the church. A humble person maintains a proper estimation of himself or herself. They don't walk around saying, I'm better than you. They don't walk around putting you in your place. They don't walk around demanding that you bow your knee to them. A humble person does not hold strife in their heart. Boy, that's a battle. I, I could not number the number of times in which something has happened and I have gotten vehemently angry about it. And that anger just wanted to grip itself in my heart because of how I perceive someone else may have treated me. That's pride. And God is opposed to the what? God is opposed to the proud. We turn to the book of Acts chapter 20 just to bring out just a couple of things. The urgency of this attribute. Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders. It is interesting that he speaks to them on this fashion. In Acts chapter 20 verse 18, when those Ephesian elders came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, now note verse 19, serving the Lord with all what? 
Folks, there is no proper service to God unless you are serving Him in humility. Humility is the attitude that serves the Lord. It's not vaulting ourselves in our pride. It's not stomping and making a scene about ourselves. It's not throwing a temper tantrum about something. No, it's humility. Humility serves the Lord. It's not saying I'm upset at you because you did this to me. And folks, I would suggest to us that humility is something that really needs to mature and grow in the church today. And when we see it flash, when we see instances of that grace being worked out in our lives and among one another, we should get thrilled about that. Because God gets thrilled about that. In 1 Peter, we won't turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, a humble person submits to the opinions and exhortations of the elderly. Pride is really a susceptibility to young people. Now I've seen some prideful old people too. But young people in general think they know how to do it. And if people would just listen to me, I'd fix everything. Well, young people, that's what I thought when I was young. And guess what? It hadn't fixed everything. (laughs) We live in a sin-fallen world. And whether you take the exhortation in 1 Peter to be the elders of the church, in that case, a humble person would submit to the opinion and exhortations of church leadership. It wouldn't be, oh, here's what the pastor suggests, I'll decide whether I want to do it or not. Or whether it be just elderly in general, and how our society despises elderly people. It's so subtle and it's so prevalent in our culture. When we are not submissive to authority, we are giving evidence of our pride. Can you let that sink in? When we are non-submissive to authority, we are giving evidence of the pride which God opposes. And folks, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, you would see very clearly that this attribute was a predominant attribute in the life of our Lord. I want you to note two words here. 
before we read it. Look in verse 3 when it says, but with humility of mind. Everybody see that phrase? But with humility of mind. Look down at verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Everybody see that? So we have a book in here. Starts off with humility, it ends in humility. So let's read it. <clears throat> Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as what? More important than who? Yourself. <clears throat> Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, folks, was He God? Did he wash the disciples' feet? Yeah. I mean, surely you would have agreed with Peter, not you wash my feet, let someone else... How about Judas wash my feet? <laughs> he washed people's feet. God, in human flesh, washed sinful man's feet. He didn't insist on his own rights. I'm God. Serve me. In fact, folks, if he would have just considered himself, he would not have come and died on a cross on our behalf. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a... and being made in the likeness of a man. <clears throat> Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient. How far? To the point of death. How cruel. Even the death of a what? Everybody see that? Folks, all evangelical obedience begins with humility. And sometimes humility hurts. It's really painful. It's not always comfortable when everything in your fallen flesh is screaming, you have a right not to do this. You have a right to take them to court. You have a right to get that money. You have a right to have that job. And it's screaming at you. It can be really, really painful. 
folks, humility regards the edification of other people to be preeminent. It's not just whether I'm right or not, it's how I say what is right. It's how I treat you when we are talking to one another. It's humility. Would you not agree that is an essential attribute? Because if you have a church and they're all filled with little cliques of different prods that everybody's rallying around, you're going to have disharmony. But if we are humble... we are humble to obedience to Christ, that brings unity. The evangelical unity of a church body depends on us exhibiting this. And folks, that is one reason that when I came to this church 21 years ago, this message was the first message I preached here. Because when I'm looking at the growth of a teenager, I'm looking for humility. When I'm looking at the growth of an adult, I'm looking for growth in humility. This is what I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking on how many Bible verses you can quote. Can you vote quote verses in pride? Can you get prideful about how many verses you can quote? <laughs> I'm looking for this attribute. And folks, we as a church ought to be looking for that attribute in its leadership. Now, it's not going to be perfect. You don't have Christ here in person pastoring you. But it should be evident. It should be there. It should really get a New Testament church excited when we see this. What's the second attribute? Verse 2, Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is a behavior that comes across mild. It comes across as accommodating the other person's weaknesses. To walk in gentleness means that there is a law of kindness in your speech. and in your actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, do you want me to come to you with a rod? Or do you want me to come to you in gentleness? What do you think the answer would be? Gentleness. Gentleness, according to 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, is the very spirit that characterized Jesus Christ. It is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. It is an attribute, gentleness is an attribute that is 
required if you're going to restore or correct a brother. And folks, you and I can understand that, right? Yelling at someone, that doesn't generally work. What happens? Folks, what happens if you yell at somebody to try to correct them? They harden their heart. They find out another way to do what they want to do. And this attribute is also to be worked out toward lost people. That's really hard, isn't it? A lot of what we see in the church today and a lot of the political activity of what we see in the church today is not with all humility and gentleness. It's fighting the world like the world fights. It is an evidence, according to James chapter 3 and verse 13, of a person who has godly wisdom. A person who has godly wisdom has a gentleness about them. And in James chapter 1 and verse 21, it says that this attribute is demanded in order for you to receive the engrafted word. Like right now. For you to respond in gentleness toward the word preached to you. Folks, these, these two attributes are part of the garment that we are to put on every day of our life that we are to mature therein, that we are to outwork. This is Christ in us, right? These were His two attributes. Humbled Himself. Paul tells the Corinthians, I urge you upon the gentleness of Christ, we to attire ourselves daily Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. And folks, these two attributes are part of the God-ordained works that we are to clothe ourselves regardless of your personality. I've had people say to me who were very mean-spirited, they say, well, that's my personality. Well, that's the problem. That's your personality, not Christ. Folks, there are ways we don't get to express our own individuality. We are to be humble, we are to be gentle, regardless of your born, firstborn personality, regardless of your giftedness, regardless of your ethnicity. Well, I'm Irish, and Irish people just get mad. I'm sorry. I've seen Americans get mad too. Put on the right garment. And regardless of your nationality, folks, this is true for every New Testament church anywhere in the world. 
They are to walk in these two attributes. Everybody see that? When as a missionary, you are proclaiming these attributes, you're not trying to Americanize them. You're trying to mature them in the things of Christ. And folks, what we see today are people using Christianity to walk in anger. To walk in violent speech. To walk in their own pride. Even to feed their own pride. That was the problem in the Corinthian church. They were sowing carnality by sowing seeds of pride in the congregation. And it was blossoming and it was becoming disharmonious. This is part of what it takes to preserve the existing unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And folks, these two attributes, look in verse 2, express itself when it shows patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Every church member, every genuine born-again believer is to walk in this way. Regardless of your maturity, regardless of your age, if you're eight years old and Christ is in you, guess what? You are to walk in humility and, and gentleness. If you are 80 years old, you don't get to say, I'm just an old, croggy, crabby person. You're to grow and walk in this way. Every husband, every wife, every child, every single person is to walk in this way. This is a God-glorifying what? Walk. If you're immature, then you exercise an immature humility. But it's still there. And you exercise an immature gentleness, but it's still there. If you're mature, then you have a full maturity of humility. If you're mature, you have a full maturity of gentleness. And folks, when when we're getting along with each other, that's not really a test of our humility and gentleness. The test is when we have to bear under what you're doing or saying. When we have to show patience. Our tendency is to retaliate. We like the verse, two eyes for an eye. You know that's not in the Bible. We like to put people in their place. And what happens in a local New Testament church 
we can be like sandpaper with each other. Some of us are fine sandpaper. Some of us are coarse. And if I took sandpaper, if I took coarse sandpaper and I just rubbed it on your skin, what's going to happen? It's going to hurt, isn't it? And at that point, using a physical illustration, it's at that point how you respond with humility and gentleness. with patience. And folks, this is not only true in a church, it's true in our homes. I have seen many an impatient parent. I have been an impatient parent before. Now, are there times that we raise our voice? Yes. 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 Are there times we have to really stand firm? But Jesus wasn't that way every day. This is to be what characterizes us. And folks, when we're characterized with humility and gentleness, when you do have to raise your voice a little bit, and when you do have to really take a stand, people take notice of that because that's not like you. Same thing in the church. If I'm always screaming at you all the time and I have to scream at you about something, you say, well, he always screams. Alright, but if I really have to call the church and say, look church, I need to really correct something going on here. Since I don't do that a lot, that really makes you stand up and listen. We might have to instruct, we might have to teach, <clears throat> we might have to admonish, but we don't have to respond in like manner. We are to tolerate one another in love. And folks, let me just mention this. The context of what I'm saying to you is a local New Testament assembly. We are to bear with one another. How? In love. Does God bear with me? Yes. Does God bear with you? Yes. I am to bear with sacrificial love. And folks, you know where you can go to learn about that. 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long, is kind. Everybody hear that? It's kind. It bears all things, believes all things. This is how biblical parents respond to their children when their children provoke them. Now I know children, you think you never provoke your parents. You think they're just happy all day long. But I can assure you <clears throat> that there are probably times they have to go off and stew. <laughs> they have to deal with their spirit so that they don't respond with the same attitude you responded to them about. 
This is how a pastor is to respond to those in the congregation. <clears throat> Ladies, this is how you need to respond, respond to your spouse. Husbands, this is how you're to respond to your wife. I know you think you're perfect and you're probably the easiest person in your mind to get along with. But other people don't always think that. And folks, would you not agree with me that if these two attributes are thriving in a New Testament congregation, that we would be preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Yes or no? These attitudes are to be outworked in every believer. These attitudes are to be cultivated in the body of Christ. Now one last point. Look at verse 3. You're going to have to work at this. Everybody see that? Being what? What does our translation say? Being diligent. This isn't going to come because you prayed about it. And you're perfect now. You're going to have to exercise labor, effort, thoughtfulness, carefulness to make these two attributes primary in your heart and life. Because, folks, if we don't, then we may have all kinds of activity and all kinds of programs. We may have all kinds of banners that are above our platform saying this is who we are. We might have a creed or a doctrinal statement. We might have a covenant. But it really doesn't mean much. Because what we have is a group of people that have clicked off according to their own self-interest. And it looks unified. But when the right circumstance comes, you will find that the church is not unified in the things of Christ. They're unified around their own self-interest. Now I want to ask you this morning, I want to speak to you as believing people. Is this attribute seen to some measure in your life? Are you outworking it? I can say I have seen, I have seen this attribute go on in our church. It has made my heart glad. I have seen this attribute not exercised. It has made my heart sad. We've got to outwork it. We've got to cultivate it. We've got to water it. It's going to take the effort of a farmer in your soul to see it come to fruition. But this is God's will for us. That when a person comes in, they may not know how to word it, 
but they know there's a different atmosphere, a different spirit, a different attitude here in this place. With our heads bowed and